1: G'day and welcome back to Shares for Beginners. Today I'm speaking with Robin Bauman from Vanguard Investments Australia. He's the head of corporate affairs at Vanguard and a member of the executive team. Robin's also the vice chair of the Self-Managed Superfund Association. Vanguard is a pioneer of index investing, something we'll explain during this interview. They are providers of ETFs, which are exchange-traded funds. We'll go through what they are and about Vanguard's unique corporate structure, which is designed to maximise returns for investors. Before joining Vanguard, Robin was a leading financial services writer, commentator
2: and editor. But first of all, can we start, what team do you follow, seeing we're talking to you from Melbourne? I'm a long-suffering uh, Melbourne supporter for my sins. So, At Vanguard, we talk about long-term investing. With Melbourne, you definitely have to be a long-time supporter.
1: You, you went into um, financial journalism, but not on the financial side of things.
2: No, I, I was, uh, my background was in uh, general sort of political and uh, news journalism. When I was working on the Sydney Morning Herald, I got asked to, I think someone had seen on my CV that I'd studied economics, so, uh, you know, ipso facto, you must be okay business. So they asked me to go around and relieve someone on holiday leave on the business desk for three weeks. And about three years later, I reminded them that it was only meant to be for three weeks. <laughs>
1: Just going back a little bit to when you were at university and studying economics and so forth, did you do any share trading at that stage?
2: Uh, I dabbled a little bit. Yeah, what, was
1: your, what was your dabbling like?
2: Extremely unsuccessful. <laughs> I mean, I mean I, it's it, it sort of somewhat ironic that I ended up with Vanguard index investing because I, I worked out from a fairly early age that direct share investing was... Um, Either I was uh, no good at it, or it was uh, closer to gambling than uh, than I liked. So, I basically became a fairly conservative investor me early on, and then obviously with the indexing approach that Vanguard pioneered, uh, I then realised actually it's a lot easier to buy the whole market, or as Jack Bogle talks about, you know, buy the haystack, uh, don't go looking for the uh, the needle.
1: In two thousand and two, you or co-authored a book. With Jeremy Duffield, who um, was the founder of Vanguard Australia, can you tell us about that book?
2: Yeah, I mean Jeremy and I uh, did a joint presentation at um, an Australian Investors Association uh, conference up on the Gold Coast, actually, and and the and the topic of it was was uh, really around what are the mistakes that we all make as investors and uh how can you learn you know hell of a lot cheaper to learn from other people's mistakes rather than making them or repeating them yourself. So uh Jeremy and I did, did a bit of a discussion and we I've got to say going into this presentation, if nobody had been prepared to share their mistakes as investors, it would have been a very short and somewhat dull presentation because we really didn't have a lot of material to work on. We were relying on the audience to be prepared to put the hand up and say, you know, I did this and, you know, it was dumb and or I learned this and whatever. But as it worked out, people were almost fighting for the microphone to share. I mean, this was a, a pretty savvy investor crowd. So people were very comfortable uh, talking about things that they'd got wrong over the years, including some pretty exotic agricultural schemes and some uh, Vanuatu investment schemes, I remember. So we came out of this presentation with sort of our head spinning because it was like it was just this fantastic sort of uh trove of sort of shared knowledge so we decided to come back at the conference the next year but this time we were a bit smarter and we taped it and transcribed some of the lessons and then basically said about how do you group the different types of mistakes you know whether it's trying to time markets whether it's following past performance uh, you know whether it's you know taking a tip from the bloke in the pub you just met uh all these types of things we we tried to group into um you know, categories of the most common mistakes that investors made and and the wealth of experience book was uh, was the outcome of that.
1: So what are some of the um the common mistakes that you found people were making?
2: Oh, probably the the most common one was um, the past performance issue where, you know, something's gone up 10, 15, 20, 50, 200%, whatever bigger a number and as human beings, we just assume that that's going to keep going. So people jump onto the bandwagon often as it's about to sort of turn down. So I think that was probably the, the biggest or the most common sort of mistake that people make. I mean, as investors, I think one of the really hard things to, to for people to understand is that we're actually not wired emotionally to be great investors because you know, we're emotional beings as people. We we respond to emotions. We we particularly respond to things like fear and uh, and sadly greed. So people typically will see people making significant amount of money in a ter- certain type of investment, whether it be stock A or stock B or property A or property B, or whatever, and think, well, you know, I want a bit of that, and sort of the, and they jump on. But often, you know, the the reason uh, at that point is that you you're paying way too much for it. The market's sort of peaked, and if we look at Cash flows into um, you know whether it's the Australian stock market or the U.S. stock market. As as markets go up, people put more money into the share market. When markets crack, as they did through the GFC, for example, what happens? People take their money out of the market. It basically means that people are buying in when things are expensive and they're selling out when things are cheap. And it's, you know, Warren Buffett, I think, has the expression, you know, would you rather buy things at a discount or buy things at a premium? You know, we, we typically will go in when we're buying a television or a, a, new, a new phone or whatever whatever consumer goods, we always go looking for the discounts. We look for the 20% off this, 50% off that. Yet in investing, when things are 20%, 30% on discount, because of the emotions around the market, that's usually when people are leaving the market as opposed to going into it. Now, having said that, you know, it's a hell of a lot harder to put your money into something that's just lost 30% in value than it is to buy a TV that's on a 30% sale price. So understanding emotions and understanding particularly your emotional breakdown is actually very important in being a successful investor. My background, as you you mentioned, comes out of the media. Obviously, the the daily news cycle drives a lot of emotion.
1: There's a a lot of information overload as well, isn't there?
2: Absolutely. Well, a lot of it is, frankly, noise. Being able to tune out. Is you know a really good skill as an investor, and I think if you look at the the very successful long term investors, whether professional or individual, they're typically people who understand there's some some of value, and they take a long term view of it, and they're prepared to wait out perhaps the first one two years where things are not sort of bubbling along, confident that over time you know the value will be there. So it's a tricky thing understanding your sort of you know short term emotions. I mean. I think it was uh, Benjamin Graham, you know, Warren the, the Warren Buffett sort of inspiration, who said that you know, in in the short term the, the stock market is a is a is a voting machine, in the long term it's a weighing machine, and I think it's that's a really critical thing for investors to understand: are they responding to the sort of voting machine piece, the the short term noise, or are they actually looking for the long term sort of weight that's actually going to emerge over time as you know markets reasonably efficient they get it right more than not but in the short term emotions can drive values way out of kilter with what's actually the economic value
1: i've heard you mention the idea of the importance of doing nothing is that where this comes in doing nothing when you just need to wait for the market to get back (laughs) um, to be more favorable to the investments that you have
2: yes i remember you know, through the uh, the GFC, you know, when, when markets were, you know, to be honest, we were in turmoil and, you know, it was a one in 70 year event. So it was pretty unusual and pretty extreme and the way the markets had shed value and different companies had collapsed, etc. And the whole financial system was under stress. But I can remember Jeremy Duffield um, saying to me, you know, this is a really interesting time to be investing. You know, it's great. For people who are not retiring for 30 or 40 years, this is a, a a terrific opportunity just to learn about markets, and they should do nothing. They just should invest, stay in their super fund, keep investing the money in a regular sort of way, buying in. Don't try and time it. and And he was right. I mean, you know, markets recovered. People that kept that stuck to having a balanced sort of investment approach did pretty well. The people that actually in the gfc that uh, got hurt and you know i remember a you know a good long-term friend of mine rang me up about october november 2008 saying look robin you know, i know you you talk about long-term and and staying in the market etc and all that sort of stuff but i've had enough you know I've, you know i've just retired i'm just seeing my account balance go down i can't take it anymore i'm going to cash and again, okay and i actually wrote a note in my diary and just Noted the day, and then within three to four years, you know he, he would have been able to slip a lot easier knowing his money was in cash or in uh, you know defensive assets, but you know three years later the 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 um the return on the portfolio was you know four or five percent up because the interest rates were still reasonably high, and then if you look at over a longer period of time markets were up sort of forty fifty percent you know all that all that sort of income was so it, it was a really good lesson in you cannot argue that there's powerful emotions at work when markets are in such um, sort of volatile mindsets. But at the same time, the real trick is to look beyond it. You know, why are you investing? If it's for a house deposit for the next year, then maybe you are better off out. But if it's for your retirement in 20 years, 30 years, even 40 years' time, then you know, in, in, in the sort of Warren Buffett's language, you're buying into a discount. The market's a discount. So why wouldn't you invest into that sort of market? So I just want to get on to ETFs.
1: I've become very interested in ETFs over the last year because um, I've, you know, like everyone, I've made mistakes. And a lot of people listening to this podcast, they've made mistakes with um, buying a stock and then it just tanks 20 or 30%. And related to that, one of the other guests that we had on this podcast mentioned the idea of single stock shock. And that's really Stuck with me, single stock shock, and he's very much a um, a champion of ETFs. Can you explain what an ETF is, please?
2: Sure. I mean, it, it, an ETF is an exchange traded fund, so it's it's really um, a pooled managed fund, which you know typically in the Australian market have been were unlisted. An ETF is simply a listed version of it.
1: Robert, Robin, sorry. Can we just go back a little bit because I just want to go back really to the basics of it. So when you speak about a managed fund, that's kind of like um, something that you would buy off the shelf and someone is actively managing. Whereas an ETF is different. How is it different?
2: Uh, no, it's not that different because you can. You're right in the sense that you can buy a managed fund, but and which is actively managed, and you know you, you could pick a certain manager. Or you could buy an index managed fund, which is which is say uh, tracking the Australian share market. So, for example, at the Vanguard, you know we have the unlisted, um, you know ASX 300 fund, which gives you exposure to the whole Australian share market. The exchange traded fund, the ETF, is simply a listed version of the same portfolio.
1: So, when you say listed, it means you can buy and sell units in that um, through that the fund on the share market. Yeah. And, and it's it's easier as just opening up an account, your Comsec account or ETrade account or whatever, and just going and saying, okay, I want this ETF because I like um, to be exposed to the ASX 200, for example.
2: Exactly, and so for a lot of people, you know, particularly people like with self-managed super funds, they already have a discount brokerage account, whether it's you know Comsec. Um, e trade, um, you know, Bell, you know, one of the online discount brokers. They've already got a stock a stock brokerage account set up. If you've already got that set up, then to buy the ETF is just like buying another single stock. With the diff, the difference being though that when you uh, buy that one ETF unit, you are buying the whole portfolio of stocks, whether it's uh, you know the U.S. stock market, the European stock market, the Asian stock market, the whole world stock market. You know, you can buy the the MSCI World Index, which you know gives you thousands of stocks just with one share trade. That's the power of both the index fund and particularly with ETFs.
1: And um, I believe they're a lot lower cost than a lot of managed funds as well. Is that correct?
2: Yeah, that, that's true. I mean, index funds typically are lower cost than the actively managed stuff, but then ETFs are, are uh, cheaper again. But what you have to be aware of, though, is that with the managed fund, you're not paying brokerage. So when you're buying the unlisted managed fund, you're not you you uh, you're not paying a brokerage fee. So the brokerage fee you have to pay the trading cost when you buy the ETF or in, when when you buy and sell it. So just um, people to be understand that that um, ETFs are certainly lower cost. But you you've got some other costs uh, to actually trade them. Okay,
1: and um, about that, um, what I mentioned before with single stock shock, ETFs tend not to move up and down at the same kind of um, with the same kind of violence that a, a single stock can.
2: That's true because the, the the bulk of assets in ETFs are indexed, so they typically are diversified across either whole markets or across market segments. For example, the I think the average number of shares that the um, Australian investors hold is about four, four and a half. So if you think about it, you, you you may own four shares. If one of those shares has, you know, a really bad performance or, you know, even worse, goes bankrupt, then, you know, 25% of your portfolio is just disappeared. And that's pretty catastrophic in the sense of, you know, you're losing a big chunk of, of your portfolio just because you've, you've got, you know, three or four stocks. What an index fund or an ETF typically would do so let's say you you're tracking the whole australian share market it'll it'll own north of two hundred stocks so clearly you know one if one major share um, collapses for whatever reason, it still has an impact, but you've diversified it across the two hundred shares in the portfolio, so the impact on the whole portfolio is significantly less that's that's just you know just a simple way to diversify your risk. I you know, often say that you know, diversification is sort of the one free kick we get as investors because you can lower your risk profile by spreading your investments across the widest possible range of stocks. And that actually insulates you from one particular calamity that, that, that might afflict you. I mean, there's probably three ways to think about risk. There's, there's the, as you talk about, the single stock shock. There's, if you pick a, an active manager, for example, you know the markets will may go up, but if your manager's got the wrong stocks, then then the then the manager risk comes into play where they've made some bad calls or they're they're out of cycle or something, and the manager doesn't actually perform in line. And the third risk is market risk, and you can with an index fund or an ETF, you take out the first two risks, you take out the single shock shock, you, you take out the manager selection risk. That leaves you with market risk, and frankly, market risk is more than enough for most of us investors. Because if you're watching, you know the ABC, the TV of of a night, or you, know, you screen through the day, you know markets move up and down, and that's the the market risk that you get with an index fund where you're tracking a whole market.
0: Introducing WonderSuite from Bluehost.com. Website creation is hard.
1: So if we could just get on to Jack Bogle then, because um, mm. Jack Bogle pioneered this kind of investing and um, he's the founder of Vanguard Investments. Um, you've met Jack Bogle on a number of occasions, haven't you?
2: I've had that privilege, yes. I uh, actually met him when I was a journalist before I worked at Vanguard, actually, that um, when he on his um, uh, trip to Australia when they launched the uh, Vanguard personal investor uh, function. So I had a great opportunity to you know, share a, a stage with him, travel with him. To, uh, to, to um, his sort of philosophy around markets, and you know, he was evangelical. I mean, he, he was he, a very he, special
1: he, kind of person, wasn't he? And um, because he was really I, on the investors' side, wasn't he?
2: Absolutely. I mean, in he he basically worked out that uh, you had to try and give investors, you know, as he used to say, um, a fair shake. And what he saw was an industry which, at that time, particularly, was was um, you know, had a lot of upfront uh, fees, upfront loads, as they're called in the US, uh, you know, a lot of commission structures, a lot of cost that the investors were paying away. And, you know, he, he sort of had, I guess, this epiphany that, you know, when you actually looked at the the short-term uh, trading mentality of a lot of the uh, stock funds in the US, uh, they didn't actually outperform the broad market. And academics like Burton Malkiel, who wrote *The um, Random Walk Down Wall Street, um, you know, it was on a similar sort of academic study around, well, hang on, what, it, rather than trying to pick stock A over stock B, what happens if, you, if, if there was a, just buy the whole market and let it work for you? Because certainly, you know, Melchior's research showed that, you know, the US stock market had been this uh, great economic sort of way to create wealth over, over, over time. And, you know, we're not all... In fact, very few people have, you know, someone like Warren Buffett's ability to to invest and uh, and create that sort of wealth. But here was a vehicle which really democratized investment. You know, Bogle, so genius, was to recognize that if you could capture the total market's return, and but to do it, obviously there's costs in it. You had to keep costs, you know, really low as possible. So he, he was. Called that, absolutely- um,
1: he called that the cost matters hypothesis, didn't he?
2: Exactly, yeah. And, you know, in, in many things in life, you know, the more you pay, the more you get, right? Whether we're talking about luxury cars or uh, computers, whatever it might be. You know, Jack Bogle's argument was in investing, you know, the more you pay, the less you get because, you know, you, you effectively reduce your net return by the amount that you pay away in fees. And the other piece of it, he, you know, he, he None of us know what the performance of markets or stocks or property will be in the future, but we can understand exactly what our costs will be going forward because that's you know, that that that's a known factor. You know, you know what the fee is on the fund. You know what the fee is on the ETF. So you know what you're going to pay away in cost. What you don't know is what the performance is going to be.
1: When I mean, just going back a little bit to the Jack Bogle story as well, is that um, he we found himself – at 44 with six children to feed and no job. And he was in this position when he actually started this idea of um, investing, which I believe at the time was criticised for guaranteeing mediocrity. So (laughs) he really had a lot of belief in trying to do something.
2: Yes, he he absolutely had had a vision around it. And yes, he 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 found himself uh, looking for a new job in his mid-40s because he was on the wrong side of a a sort of merger uh, boardroom power struggle. And he decided it was time to put what had essentially been his university thesis into effect, and that was really that. And and it was called Bogle's Folly for decades, you know. And it was spectacularly unsuccessful when it launched. I think you know the, the capital raising they had for you know it, it was um, you know twelve or fourteen million dollars, something like that. It was was pretty modest compared to what they were aiming to do. And in fact, there was even. Um, um, posters put up inside some uh, pretty large brokerage firms in the US, describing index funds uh, as un-American. You know the, the sort of image of un- un- <laughs> un-American un- investing. That's lovely,
1: isn't it? It's great. <laughs> yeah, but,
2: yeah. Because as you said, it, it was sort of it was aiming for average, and of course, you know, we all want to be above average. And um, Jack was sort of pilloried, and absolute testimony to the will and the drive of the man to. Uh, keep going when I think a lot of others probably would have given up. And um, you know, he built the Vanguard business. I mean, the, the secret really to the Vanguard story or the Vanguard effect is that he he established Vanguard as the uh, a true mutual, so that the people who invested in the in that initial U.S. fund or U.S. company were actually the you know, became the shareholders. So it was it was that old fashioned mutual structure for the benefit of members. Yeah, for the benefit of members. So, basically, Vanguard, as it creates revenue, it's got two choices really. You can actually uh, invest in new services, new products, whatever it might be, technology, or it can give um, the 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 revenue back to its investors by lowering fees. That's really the only mechanism we have. So, if you look at Vanguard's history as it's uh, raised assets, and it's now over you know around six trillion dollars in assets, sort of globally. As assets have gone up, fees have continued to come down.
1: Yeah, but I believe Jack Bogle could have been Warren Buffett-style rich but um, preferred to look after investors.
2: Yeah. Bogle's um, lasting legacy is really that index investing has provided competition to active fund management and it's lowered fees for investors around the world. And you know, I, you know, I don't think it would be in any shape or form an exaggeration to say Jack Bogle saved investors globally Billions of dollars in fees.
1: Yeah, it's amazing too that um, he's inspired people enough to. What do they call them? Bogleheads. The cult of the Bogleheads. <laughs>
2: <laughs> yeah, yes, that, that, that's um, and, that, and that's a worldwide phenomenon. I mean, but that, that these are people who are passionate about um, the investment philosophy that Jack Bogle espoused so eloquently over so so many years. And, and I think you know when I had, uh, joined Vanguard. I think the, year, or the first year I joined it, I, I was uh, looking at some of the speeches that Jack Bogle had, and I think he accounted that he'd done 63 speeches in America that year.
1: Yeah, so people really seem to love him and uh, get inspired by him. He's a, a great man, sadly missed. Exactly. We've been um, asking for listeners' questions, and I think we should just preface this by saying that we're not giving any individual advice, and we don't know about any listener's situation. But I guess this is more in your role as um, from the self-managed super fund association. The listener, Ophi Maskey, has asked that she's thinking about the best options for her super. Are there any advantages of starting a self-managed super fund over just staying in an industry fund?
2: Well, I think it's a great question. It Obviously, as you said, it, it depends very much on people's personal circumstances um, Self-managed super funds are a very flexible, sort of powerful vehicle to be able to invest through, because particularly for people like small business people, that they, you know, it gives them advantages that they can't access through um, the, the sort of industry retail super funds. That said, self-managed super funds are not for everybody. Uh, they can't. Come- with accounting costs that come with, you know, you need to do an audit. You, as the trustee, are taking on personal responsibility for every decision that the self managed super fund makes. So, from the self managed super fund association point of view, you know, I think if you go to the association's website, there's actually a, a bit of a tutorial and a bit of a quiz there for people to say, you know, just understand what the trustee obligations are that you're taking on as a self managed super fund. Age is important. Unfortunately, as we get older and you get you get into the realm of potentially with cognitive decline you have to think about you know who's going to look after the super fund typically you know you you, you see husband and wife you know partners within a super managed super fund one of them potentially is passionate about the super fund does a lot of the you know the investing does a lot of the admin the other perhaps less engaged you know if, if one Partner, passive, you know, we
1: call them but, passive investors.
2: <laughs> yeah, exactly. Or, or, but if one, but if one partner, if, if there's a breakup in the partnership, or one partner sadly passes away, you know the other can find themselves with a fair bit of complexity about something they don't know, know too much about. So, you've just got to be eyes open as to what the responsibilities are on you as a trustee of a self-managed super fund, and certainly within an industry or you know, I think with superannuation funds generally, pay attention to the costs. The other debate around self-managed super funds at the moment is how much money do you need before one makes sense? I think it's not just about account balance because so if, if you're a younger person, you know, starting out 30, 35 in your career and whatnot, then it can make absolute sense to set up a self-managed super fund if, if you, you want to put your entire life savings into it and you want to be able to manage it. Because if you leave it until you say 50 when you've got a decent account balance, you'll, you'll incur a tax bill to move it, you know, to sell out of one fund and move into the self-managed super fund. So a lot of it's to do with your financial planning. I think that I would not set up a self-managed super fund if I did not have a good advisor uh, to work with because there's a lot of complexity. It's not, you know, in some ways I think the, the term self-managed super fund is a bit of a misnomer. I know very few people with a self-managed super fund that do not have a trusted advisor specialist advisor sitting alongside them in the background helping guide their way through it and certainly on the administration etc you know a, a very few people actually do the whole admin piece themselves so um
1: just getting back to vanguard for a moment um there's an interesting story about where the name of vanguard came from can you just share that with us please
2: yeah, Jack Bogle was a uh, student of British naval history, um, <laughs> as
1: you as you as you do,
2: <laughs> as, as you are. Um, yeah, he he was at, so um, so. Vanguard was the uh, you know, it was based on the I think the Battle of the Nile. I'm, I can't remember the year off the top of my head, but uh, you know, basically um, Nelson's flagship in in the sort of uh, battle in the naval, one of the famous naval battles uh, with the French at the time. So people can look that up. I think one of the things that attracted Jack to it was I think the, the British were undermanned and it was like uh, the, the, you know, it was apparently a pretty stunning victory for... The David and Goliath strategy. story, wasn't it? Exactly, yeah. yeah. yeah.
1: So um, one of the most interesting things I've noticed on the Vanguard website is the Vanguard Interactive Index Chart, which we'll uh, put a link to on the website. Can you um, give us a bit of an idea about how a newbie should approach this chart?
2: Well, really, that that chart, what it does, it allows people to understand the power of markets. So you can look at that, and you can you can actually track um, what the Australian markets done, what the U.S. markets done, what international indexes. I mean, the the beauty of indexing is that you can see what what an entire market, um, you know, whether it's a listed property market, uh, whether it's a fixed income market, and you can see how those things all work together. That interactive chart allows people to put in different parameters, you know, time frames. They can see how things have gone over the last five years, ten years, going back. I think it goes back thirty years from memory. So it's just a great way of understanding what markets can deliver over time. And again, it comes back to that Vanguard message around uh, stay the course, as Jack Bogle uh, famously used to say. And you know, it's about the long term. And um, if you go back to that chart now and look at it put in the, um, the years around the global financial crisis, you know, the sort of 07 to 10 uh, years, and to see how sort of you know, dramatic, and then go and look at it within 20 years. And suddenly, you know, what was a very dramatic event for anyone that lived through it, uh, it puts it into a, a much broader historical context and, and shows the impact of it. And, you know, frankly, now it looks like, yeah, it was it was significant, but not nearly as dramatic as those of us that lived through it remember.
1: Yes, it was just a minor blip, wasn't it? Really, when you look at it in those terms, and I think that's just something that younger people, for example, should be um, thinking about as well in terms of their investments.
2: Well, I mean, one of the things with younger Australian investors, you know, we've been twenty-seven years, I think, since we had a technical recession, so you can understand like there's a whole generation of investors that don't really understand that that you know that markets can go down and stay down for quite a long time. So. You know, people need to be very realistic about their expectations about what, what markets can deliver. But, you know, looking at it through a historical lens is, is a great way to start.
1: Okay, well, just wrapping up now, um, Robin. We're directing this podcast at people who are just starting to become interested in the share market and have got no idea what's going on. What are the top skills you think they should be trying to develop to um, to help them gain knowledge of the market and um, at least not lose any money?
2: Right. <laughs> I guess everyone has the objective of not losing my money, but well, I think we're really, that's what
1: we're really focusing on here in this <laughs> podcast. First step: don't lose money.
2: But I think the first step of any investing, though, is that you have to accept that you are taking on some risk. You're taking on some level of market risk, so the chances of it uh, of it going down, you know, is, is is real. So people need to understand, particularly time frame. Now, that's one of the things. Like, okay, you're investing for one year, three year, five year, or thirty years. That makes a huge amount of difference to um the way you're doing it in terms of what skills you need to develop i mean i think it it, again it depends on how involved and how sort of hands-on you want to be because for some people frankly they've got they'd rather spend their time with other things in their life rather than worrying about investing and making decisions and whether markets are up down sideways whatever and so i think the first question is really around what sort of investor you want to be I would encourage people to be informed and understand what it is they're investing in, what's your super fund investing in, what the investments are that you're actually making. Understand them because if you don't understand them, then you're potentially going to be surprised and not always in a good way. So I think understanding it there, but you can, whether it's through your super or working through an, an advisor or doing this or particularly through index funds you can set a broad asset allocation that will actually match your personal risk profile because nobody really understands how you react to the stress of sort of market events uh, like you do so I think from a default point of view is by the markets where you think you know you you've got you're confident or you think there's uh, some chance to sort of outperform and do something different then by all means tilt the portfolio but to me the default start point is don't over complicate it keep it simple as you're trying to do on the on this podcast you know instead of trying to work out which of the top 500 companies on the australian stock market i should buy buy the whole market and then you know if if you see something that takes your you know, perhaps you know you you may work in work in the health industry and you might have a particular focus on something that you think uh, you want you want to put investment into by all means you know take that sort of position and understand it but i think the default for me is just buy the whole market you know buy the, by the, by the international shares as well as the australian market because you know, if you buy the US market, you're buying into Apple, Microsoft, you know, these large technology companies that frankly do not exist in the Australian market. Mm-hmm. The Australian market is relatively like financial services, banks, and mining companies. It's, it's only 3% of the world's market cap, uh, you know, the global share market capitalization. So I uh, would also encourage people, buy the market, but then buy the whole market.
1: People who are interested in uh, Vanguard ETFs and want to learn more, where should they go to get some more information?
2: Well, the Vanguard website's a great place to start because there's um, a bunch of information. I mean, one of the the other legacies of Jack Bogle, I think, is uh, we try, and I emphasize try, to speak plainly about, you know, it's a a complex world, investing, but we we try and speak in plain language, explain the concepts to people, and help them understand what it is they're buying. And then you want people to understand the investment products that are about to put their hard-earned money into because they need to understand the risks they're taking. You certainly need to understand what the costs are that you're paying. And, we, you know, we try and explain that simply. If, if they feel like they still don't quite get that, then I'd say, you know, look around to try and get yourself a decent advisor. Um, there are increasingly, you know, as you're doing, if you're with with, with great podcasts, informa- there's no shortage of information around investing. The trick is to hone it down to the stuff that actually relates to you and and you can actually get real benefit from, from listening to it.
1: And you can also invest directly via even your industry super fund. I mean, I was just looking at my super and I just noticed the other night that there's a whole range of Vanguard ETFs available to invest in directly from...
2: Sure. I mean, a number of the major super funds now understand that they, they, you know, they partly is a competitive response to self-managed super funds, actually give people the option to invest directly in certain types of things, I think, you know, like the top 200 companies. But, you know, I guess one of the things to understand there is, you know, when you're taking on those sort of self-directed decisions, you know, I'd say a good thing is to leave a good portion of your superannuation money in the hands of the professionals whose job is to manage the money day in, day out. That's their full-time job. Um, And by all means, you know, get involved. And I think when people do make direct decisions – you typically are more engaged in it and actually um, uh, learn more about how the whole thing works. So I think that's a positive thing. Best money you can spend possibly is on educating yourself about uh, investing.
1: Okay, Robin, thank you very much. It's been a pleasure talking to you.
2: No it's fun, Thanks for that.
1: Thank you. Shares for Beginners is for information and educational purposes only. It isn't financial advice, and you shouldn't buy or sell any shares based on what you've heard here. Any opinion or commentary is the view of the speaker only, not Shares for Beginners. This podcast doesn't replace professional advice regarding your personal financial needs, circumstances, or current situation. And I'd also like to say a big thank you to Christopher Surlos of Garlic Breath Studios for all the fantastic help with the music production.